Welcome to the podcast called Your Future Self Will Thank You with Drew Dick and Jeremy Slager. With secrets to self-control from the Bible and brain science, this podcast will help you make change that lasts. Your Future Self Will Thank You podcast, self-control and habit building from a distinctly Christian perspective. All right. Welcome, everybody, to this special podcast, uh, to this special Your Future Self Will Thank You bonus episode. And I'm here with Drew Dick and with our guest, Sky Jatani, who is the co-host of the Holy Post podcast. And today, with this special episode, we are having mailbag questions. So questions from our friends and people who have... um, followed Drew and Sky and Moody Publishers on social media, and they've sent in questions for us to to cover. Some good questions, too. I was impressed. That's right. The quality of the questions. This is Drew, by the way. And this is Sky. I was not impressed because I've not seen the questions. Oh, that's better yet. You're going yeah. in fresh. Mm-hmm. Yes. All right. Well, let's get right into it. So the first question that we have comes from Austin Krim. And Sky, I think I'll send this one over to you. The role of personal effort... Versus the Holy Spirit's provision in the act of sanctification. Yeah, do we need to define any terms there for people who are unfamiliar? Or just roll with it. Just roll with it. Okay, we'll just roll with it. Um, I think that trying to differentiate personal effort versus the work of the Holy Spirit is a very modern, uh, scientifically biased approach to the Christian life. It's not a question that was encountered in the ancient world. It wasn't something that Paul addressed. I mean, he was totally okay with the ambiguity and the mystery. He talks about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who's at work within you, right? How does? Mm-hmm. And I think it, it it's rooted in um, a sort of God of the gaps approach to the world. And if you don't know what I mean by that, there is a sense that whenever science can explain something, it pushes God out of the equation, and therefore the only room left for God in the natural world is for things we cannot explain. And sometimes Christians take great comfort in the fact that there are still mysteries out there in the natural world, which means there must be a place for God until science answers it. Similarly, if somehow an element of our sanctification can be explained through human effort, it must mean God wasn't involved. Hmm. And that's just simply not a theistic or biblical understanding of who God is or how he operates. So I, as a 21st century modern person, can explain to you why I'm trying to think of some natural phenomenon. I can explain to you why Drew is exhibiting male pattern baldness. (laughs) (laughs) You had to go there, didn't you? I had to go there. (laughs) I don't even have a pattern anymore. It's just entirely baldness. (laughs) We know why that happens, right? But that doesn't mean God isn't involved in it. Can we we edit that part out since it's a podcast? (laughs) I think we're going to go one shot recording on this one. So anyway, this, this idea that it's either my effort or the Holy Spirit's effort is is a false dichotomy. You know what? I, I got to jump in here. I agree completely. It, it's a classic false alternatives, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Where it's like, okay, uh, say you're making, let's hope, uh, progress in your spiritual walk to sanctification. Of course, that $10 word for just becoming more like Jesus. Mm-hmm. Um, who did it? Was it your effort, your striving, or God's empowerment? And I think the answer all throughout scripture, and this guy's absolutely right, is both. And you see in so many scriptures, of course, the one he cited um, about working out your salvation with fear and trembling, that sounds, oh, that's all on me. I got to do it. Mm -hmm. But then you keep reading for it is God who works in you, right? So there's divine empowerment right alongside human effort. Um, And I think the key, and I've said this before, but is to strive with God's spirit instead of against God's spirit. 
and you don't have to pick. I think you need both. And if you if you just say it's all God, and, you know, Jesus, take the wheel, I'm going to kick back, enjoy the pleasure cruise towards holiness. Or if you say it's all about me, I'm going to pull myself up by my spiritual bootstraps. Either way mm-hmm. is dangerous. So we had another question from Ethan Moreno. And he asked, how do you continue to apply self-control if you continue to lose self-control? And it's something, Drew, that we talked a little bit about on the podcast and I think what, what you called it was the what-the-heck effect. Oh, right. So it's where when you lose self-control, when you stumble and fall, it kind of cascades until you're just saying, what the heck? Like, you just like kind of, what's the point? What's the point? I, I screwed up once, so I should just – I'm, I'm going to stop trying for a little bit, and I'll, I'll get back on the bandwagon tomorrow. How do you stop that cycle of when you lose self-control? How do you get back on track? of rebuilding that self-control? Yeah, that, and that's a great question because I think we all face that. And, you know, just for a little clarity, what you're talking about, I wish I could claim that I uh, ter- uh, coined that term, um, but it's actually these diet research- researchers that observe that when people have a small indiscretion, right, when they eat a piece of candy or, you know, just a slice of pizza, not nothing too dramatic, but mm-hmm. what follows that indiscretion is often a full-on binge, right? Because you say, well, what the heck? I've already screwed up. Yeah. You know, my, <laughs> um, I'm off the diet. Now I'm going to go crazy, which is just ridiculous thinking, but that's how we do it. I think we can all relate to that. I think it applies not only to eating, but of course, to sinful behaviors, all kinds of bad habits. Um, and so, yeah, the, the first thing, and I think as Christians, this is where forgiveness is so important because mm-hmm. there's the opposite phenomenon, the blank um, what is it? The fresh start effect, which refers to this idea that people's behavior actually improves when they perceive that they're starting fresh. They have a blank slate. Uh, so, yeah, not only you know asking forgiveness of God from God and from mm. others, but actually internalizing that that grace that you've received is essential, just psychologically, for your behavior improving. And then the other thing I'd say to this too is that. Your progress is always going to be uneven. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, I think I grew up on stories of these people who are like, oh my goodness, I came to Jesus and I, or I said this prayer, or I had this kind of recommitment in my life and I didn't, I was an alcoholic and I haven't touched a drop since, or mm-hmm. I just had complete victory in this area of my life. Those are the exceptions. Okay. I'm not saying God by his incredible power cannot do that in your life, but if that's the expectation, you're probably going to be disappointed because usually let's face it, it's two steps forward, one step back. Mm-hmm. That's kind of how it works. So Go into it acknowledging if you have a besetting sin or a bad habit, you're probably going to have some setbacks, okay? And and you have to cut yourself some slack and some grace knowing that God forgives you. And ultimately, that's just going to be more beneficial as well. Yeah, what is the role of guilt and shame? Because I think they, they can be almost like force multipliers of our addiction and of our stumbles into sin and that it causes a, a feedback loop of, pushing you into isolation. Hmm. Yeah, this is a tricky one, I think, because we've become such a therapeutic culture and we generally view all sense of guilt and shame as inherently problematic Mm -hmm. and wrong and bad and to be avoided at all costs. And very often that's true. It can be incredibly damaging and, and abusive. However... Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians, he doesn't use, depending on the translation, shame or or, um, guilt, but he talks about sorrow, Hmm. that there is a sorrow that leads to repentance and there's a sorrow that leads to condemnation. So it's not always wrong that when you have sinned, when you have turned away from God, when you have hurt someone else, if you grieve that, if you feel guilty about that, if you have shame over that, 
that can actually be the beginnings of repentance. Hmm. And that repentance then leads to life and transformation, which is a good thing. There is a form of sorrow or guilt or shame that can just spin you down into oblivion and you become self-destructive. And it's that I've fallen off the wagon. I might as well just fall off the cliff too, right? That, mm-hmm. that just goes further and further. So it's not, you can't just make a blanket statement that all shame and guilt is automatically bad. There are other cultures, depending on, you know, shame-based cultures there, I think they overemphasize the shame piece to a harmful degree. So mm-hmm. I just think most typically white North American culture is so shame averse. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of our superpowers in our culture is our inability to feel shame. Like we can, I mean, it's getting worse, I would argue. So I think there's a degree to which we need to, we need to come back to a biblical vision of this that doesn't overemphasize shame, but doesn't dismiss it as completely unredemptive either. Mm -hmm. I like that. That's a helpful distinction between, yeah, the sorrow that leads to repentance or to just more condemnation. So I think that's a good way of thinking about it. And I think, yeah, you're probably right. Our culture maybe errs on the side of, I shouldn't feel bad about anything. Right. (laughs) And it also at the same time does accelerate the shame sometimes too. There's both sides where it's like there's a shamelessness that happens, but then there's also that particularly I think in the church culture where you just feel shame over things and it's a shame that leads you to withdraw into isolation. And that makes me think of the question that Carlin Trammell asked of, he'd love to hear you talk about the role of confession and accountability in fighting the war against sin. Hmm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to toss this over to Sky. <laughs> All right, let's talk about... He's a pastor. Oh, well, <laughs> you went to seminary. Yeah, that's true. That isn't... My dad's a pastor. I'm a son of a pastor. Well, I'm not. <laughs> so you've got generational <laughs> legacy on your side. And I'm not in, like a practicing, I'm using air quotes, pastor right now. I mean, I'm not on staff at a church or anything. Okay, let's talk about accountability first. Mm-hmm. I, I just, I chafe when people talk about accountability because I rarely see genuine accountability. I think what we really practice in many Christian communities should be called disclosure Mm. because we disclose our stumbles and sins and screw ups to one another, but there's really no accountability because accountability would imply that there's some kind of consequence. Yeah, you're right. Usually it's just like, oh yeah, me too, brother. Right. It's it's, it's, and disclosure is not a bad thing. I think it's good to have things out in the open and not, not hide and things. So I'm not saying disclosure is bad, but Accountability, that's a whole different level of, of authority that you're handing over to somebody in your life that we typically don't do. I think accountability is not a bad thing, but that's not what we normally have in our groups. It's disclosure. And it's, yeah, we all suck. Let's, let's commiserate together and do better next time, buddy. You know, that, that, and that's yeah. fine. There's a place for that. Um, the, the confession thing is super underpracticed. Mm-hmm in a lot of contemporary American Christianity. Uh, I think, again, because we don't like the shame, we don't like to admit fault, we are worried about revealing our weaknesses to people. But at its essence, confession, even in, in the Greek word for confession, means simply to say the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right? You are admitting what God already knows to be true. So you're not informing mm-hmm. him of anything or anyone else. But James says that we are to confess our sins to one another. And we've hyper-personalized that in a lot of particularly evangelicalism to say, well, I've confessed my sins to God and that's good enough. I don't need to say what I've done to anybody else. I certainly don't need to go to the person I may have harmed and tell them what I've done. Like we have, we have gone too far in that direction and forgotten that God's grace is manifest to us and his presence is manifest to us through our sisters and brothers. 
And so when we cut them out of the equation of of confession and disclosure and our growth in Christ, we it shouldn't surprise us that we're not finding ourselves transformed or sanctified. That's good. Hey, I want to jump in with a quick question for Sky. Um, so if you follow Sky on social media, you've probably seen that he does these little doodles that are really cool that encapsulate a spiritual truth or a point. Uh, one of those, I remember, you know, he, you've got two cars. One has like guardrails uh, around it and the other one just has like a driver and I immediately you know thought of this because I've written about self-control and it has to do with self-control maybe I'll let you explain uh, the doodle a little more and then talk about the difference between the car with guardrails what that means and the one with the driver yeah I think I drew that as an illustration to um, explain the role of the Old Testament law okay for, That's for right. a Christian like and Jesus clearly says the Old Testament law is a good thing it's not a bad thing like the commandment to not commit murder is a good thing. Probably a good idea. <laughs> it's a good idea. But the, the essence there is that these, these commandments given in the Old Testament served as guardrails. They, they kept sinful, broken, screwed up people and communities from veering too far off the road, right? Because you're a terrible driver. We have to put these guardrails up so that you don't murder one another. And we should be grateful that they're there. But what Jesus talks about, particularly in the Sermon on the Mount, is it's not good enough to just not murder people. You need to not be angry, which is the internal uh, disposition that then leads you to hatred and anger and and ultimately murdering somebody. So what Jesus' point is, is that your righteousness needs to surpass that of the law. You need to be the kind of person that doesn't need guardrails because you are such a good driver. You don't have to worry about careening off the cliff of the side of the road. So uh, a lot of people want to pit like new covenant life over and against old covenant life and the law is a horrible, terrible thing. And that's clearly not what scripture teaches. The law is a good thing. It's just insufficient. It may keep you from murdering somebody, but it can't make you not hate them. Right. And it's, it's that internal righteousness. It's the law written on our hearts through the Holy Spirit that is what we're called to in the New Testament. So sometimes I mean, anybody who's raised children knows that you need guardrails because these are little <laughs> monsters and they don't know what they're doing and they need external boundaries and things like that. But the hope is by the time they reach adulthood, they have enough self-control and other qualities that they don't need you around as mom or dad to make sure that they do. It means something's gone dramatically wrong. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And I think that's similar to what Jesus is saying about moral development and life in the kingdom of God is you may start with this external law, but it's just a start. You need to become the kind of person in me who naturally does the things that God calls us to do. That's good. You know, when I was um, writing my book, a lot of the advice and the tips that I had in there, and this is kind of adapting uh, your uh, metaphor, but were kind of guardrail things, right? Taking precautions against certain types of behavior. So if you've got a problem with porn, for instance, you better have a, you know, a net nanny <laughs> filter or something. If you are a shopaholic, maybe you want to put a cap on your credit card. Um, there are these external constraints. Mm-hmm. And yet, it's so true that if you don't if you don't, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by your own efforts as well, working in tandem, develop an inner disposition that is bent towards God to please him, to grow in this area, this fruit of the Spirit, it doesn't matter how many stinking barriers and guardrails and fences you put up in your life, you're going to crash right through them right. and destroy yourself <laughs> if you don't have that inner uh, cultivation of the fruit of the Spirit. So anyway, when I saw that, I just thought that's such a great way of visually rendering that idea. Yeah, it seems like the the spiritual life is more about changing our hearts, changing the 
the whole outlook on the world and less about just behavior modification. Right. And something that Phil Laver had asked is he was asking, is it possible that developing new habits can actually change the way we see the world and change down to the core of who we are, who are what, what our personality is, how we approach the world? Do you think that those behaviors, those habits, those things that we instill in our life can have that dramatic of an output in your life? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, the, the, the author that comes to mind, and I don't think he's a moody author, so I hope this is okay, but James K.A. Smith talks about this. Yeah. Right? And the you role, are what you love. You are what you love mm-hmm. and the role throughout history of, of forms of Christian worship, the, the repetition of different liturgies uh, shape the way you view yourself, shape the way you view the world, impacts the way you behave. Um, we have routines in our families and with our kids and stuff that, that definitely shape us. And this kind of gets mm-hmm. into the nature-nurture debate a little bit, like how malleable are we? But if, you, if, if you've ever traveled internationally and gone to cultures that are dramatically different than North American culture, hopefully you've experienced this, like some, there are people that think fundamentally differently than we do. And it's not because they're not human or they don't have 20, 23 chromosomes, 23. Yeah. 23. Like they're, we're biologically the same. It's the impact of culture and the repetitions of culture shape the way they view and think and interact. So absolutely we are culture creatures. And as evangelicals, I would say, I think this is a fair, fair critique. We've been insufficiently attentive to the ways in which we are shaped by the things that we habitually do. Um, and, and Jamie Smith, of course, talks about this mm-hmm. in his work about the, the what does he call them, the liturgies of the secular, uh, I think, um, where we don't even realize that we're participating in these kind of cultural um, liturgies that are shaping us. And as evangelicals, we've tended to think if we just get the right information in between our ears, that mm-hmm. will translate into the right behavior in our right. lives mm-hmm. when the truth is we're really more shaped by those, call them what you want, habits, liturgies, repetition, rituals uh, than we'd like to admit. Curious how you'd answer. What habit are you most grateful for in your life? Bathing. <laughs> <laughs> Us too, Sky. <laughs> I mean, th- yeah. th- this is silly, but I'm uh, you. I remember when I first talk, took my wife to India. I think we've been married about a year, and we landed in Mumbai in the middle of the night, and th- we're taxiing down the runway to go to the gate, and they let the external air filter into the cabin, and. There's just this hot, sticky, humid, smelly, horrible stench that comes into the into the airplane. And my wife looks at me. She goes, "Oh my gosh, what is that?" I said, "That is the smell of one billion people, right? That that's but and you go to India and you realize a majority of the people here are not wearing deodorant. Mm-hmm. And this is getting somewhere, I promise. Um, and it takes a while, but over the couple of days, you get used to it. You don't smell it anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and it just it speaks to the fact that in certain cultures. It's just not, it's not, it's not important, right, to bathe every day or to use deodorant. Or in some places, they just don't have the wealth to be able to do that or the plumbing. So the practice of bathing every day, we take for granted, or at least mm-hmm. regularly, we take for granted. But there's other cultures that don't value that at all. And mm-hmm. it's, I'm getting back to the idea that culture determines what is valued. Culture determines our practices and habits. If I suddenly stopped bathing like Matthew McConaughey or something and, and didn't use any deodorant <laughs> or shirt. Like, yeah, people would notice and I would, it would be a problem, right? Yeah. It would have, yes, ramifications, ramifications. for your personal life. Yeah. Yes. Now, if you're talking about what, like spiritual practice do I most value? Sure. Um, let me think about that. I probably, um, solitude. Hmm. Hmm. 
Solitude. And, and by solitude, I don't just mean like prayer. Mm-hmm. I mean being alone. And for me, over the, I don't know how many years, the most important thing that I've developed is a greater sense of self-awareness in solitude to ask what's really inside of me. For me, that is kind of the prerequisite for communion with God. Because if I don't know what's really inside of me, I don't have anything to offer to him. And it's not, it's not that everything inside of me has to be like, okay, what am I thankful for? What am I joyful about? What am I going to praise God for? Sometimes it can be, what am I really angry about? What am I jealous about? What am I insecure about? And that's what I bring before him. Mm-hmm. But I think we're so busy and distracted on our devices all the time and stimulated by everything going on around us, bombarded by 5,000 advertisements a day or whatever the stat is at now, that we don't slow down enough to know what's inside of us. And without that capacity, you cannot develop intimacy with anyone, let alone God. So solitude and quiet, by far the most important for me. That's huge. Um, You know, one that I'll mention for myself, um, that's been a challenge, but an incredibly rewarding habit when we've been able to do it, and that is having family dinners. Sounds simple. I'm, I'm piggybacking off Sky's uh, kind of perfunctory habit of bathing every day. But honestly, it's a challenge because I got little kids, right? So they're running in every direction. They don't want to sit still for long. Um, but, you know, back to the idea of habits, researchers talk about keystone habits. One of those keystone habits and a keystone habit is something that exerts a positive influence across the spectrum of your life, not in the activity itself just, but in other areas too. And having dinners as a family, dropping the devices, looking each other in the eye, having a little bit of conversation, even though it's incredibly difficult sometimes, (laughs) is just so rewarding, not just like relationally and interpersonally, but you realize that it's just that kind of touch point throughout a crazy busy day where you actually connect with your family again. So that's something that's been rewarding for me. All right. And then the last question I want to pose to you guys before we head out, what's the least helpful advice you've ever gotten when it comes to self-control? What is the le- I got to think about that. I'll go first. I got one. <clears throat> Top of mind. Um, and it's, it's silly too. Okay. So when I was in, when I was a teenager in, in youth group at my church, and I don't know if this is advice, but this was something some of the guys were doing to combat lustful thoughts. They'd have a rubber band around their wrist and just pull it back and let her, let her fly every time that they had a lustful thought pop into their head. And I guess the idea was, I don't know, is this like a B.F. Skinner behaviorism? or I don't know, but <laughs> I guess you'd call it aversion therapy <laughs> where hopefully after a while you'd associate, I guess, a lustful thought with the pain of snapping that rubber band against your skin and you could kind of train yourself like a a rat uh, (laughs) away from lustful thoughts. So something like that is kind of humorous. I don't know if I actually did it myself. I may have. Uh, Anyway, it was a practice and it's obviously kind of a, I think a picture of the futility of silly external Mm -hmm. tricks to address what is a far more complicated and difficult temptation. (laughs) Yeah, that's that's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> You're not going to top that. I'm not going to okay, top that. Just face uh, it. I mean, the one that comes to mind is, and sadly, this wasn't that long ago. It wasn't like I was a teenager, or, 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 or and I didn't, and I heard this from like a reputable person. But anyway, their advice was uh, because men often are so out of touch with their feelings mm-hmm. and their inner life and thoughts that the way to to bring discipline to that and to be more self-aware and to avoid the destructive things that happen to us when we're not self-aware. It was the moment you have thought a feeling, an impulse that is appropriate or inappropriate, whatever you need to disclose that immediately. (laughs) Oh no. Right. 
And he, this guy shared, uh, for I, I thought this was appalling to me, but this guy shared, he was at a restaurant with his wife and the server, the woman waitress, you know, is just taking their order or whatever. And she walks away from the table and he immediately tells his wife, I'm lusting over that, that waitress. Oh my god. Because goodness. that was his, and, and I'm listening to this going, this is not good advice <laughs> because I mean, really what you've done is maybe, maybe you're trying to be disclosing and confessing and but you're now telling that to your spouse which is putting an unnecessary burden on her to that is not helpful right it's not a loving thing to do to burden somebody with something that they're not prepared to deal with right but this is what he was advising is that everyone all the time should be disclosing everything to everybody to be totally transparent no filter no filter and it's just it was profoundly unwise Yes, and I said that there's no way you're going to top mine. <laughs> I think you did. <laughs> I think I did. I think you did. That's yeah. worse. I agree. Well, thank you, Sky, for coming out and joining us for this special episode of the Your Future Self Will Thank You podcast. Um, thanks to everybody who's listened. And yeah, if we get some more questions, we might be able to record another episode sometime. But Who knows? We didn't plan on this one, so anything's didn't. possible. We'll see you guys later. You have been listening to the Future Self Podcast. If you enjoyed what you just heard, subscribe and leave a review wherever you find your podcasts. Your Future Self Podcast, self-control and habit building from a distinctly Christian perspective. 